people determined to trust and obey God and when they put his interest first. Two operative terms there are prayer and hard work. It's not one or the other. It's both and, both prayer and hard work. And we're going to see Nehemiah be a perfect example of this. He lifts things up to the Lord in prayer, and then he gets off the couch and goes to work. And that's a model for us. Nehemiah is a very godly model, very spiritual model, and he's someone that we should emulate. There was a bit of a history lesson last time. I wanted to review it ever so briefly. I told you I was going to give you a quiz. I was just joking about that. It's a full-blown test. It'll be worth a third, <laughs> third of your grade. A third of your grade will be this. I want to review the Persian kings with you because it's very helpful to have an overlay of what's happening in history with what's happening in Nehemiah. The Persian kings, the first one we met was Cyrus, then Darius, then Xerxes, who remember is Esther's husband, then Artaxerxes, who's the king in our book of Nehemiah that we'll study, and at the end of Nehemiah, there'll be another king called Darius II, named Darius II. And as of chapter 1 through 6, we see Cyrus as the king. Of course, we saw in Esther, Xerxes is the king. He's a major player in there. In Ezra chapter 6 through 10, Artaxerxes is the king. But also in Nehemiah, Artaxerxes is the king, at least through most of the book. So if you recognize this name, or if the name sounds familiar to you, it should. We've already studied some of the things that Artaxerxes did in Ezra. We're going to review one of those tonight because it's germane to what's happening in Nehemiah. I want to zero in just for a minute on Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Xerxes, again, was Esther's husband. He probably wouldn't appreciate being called that. But he was the king of Persia, one of the most powerful people in the world. Uh, around eight years after the book of Esther ends, Xerxes is assassinated in August of 465 B.C., by a trusted associate named Artabanus. Artabanus was part of Xerxes' inner circle, and history is a little unclear as to why this happened, but there's always palace intrigue in the ancient world. So Artabanus has Xerxes assassinated. At the same time, he has Xerxes' oldest son, another man named Darius. I don't want to get you too confused. There's a lot of Dariuses here. But he has the older son, Darius, assassinated at the same time. Xerxes is then out of the picture. But Artaxerxes, who is younger, we're not exactly sure how old he is, but he's old enough to take action against Artabanus, and so Artaxerxes kills Artabanus, and now we have Artaxerxes is the, is the king of Persia. What we learned in chapter 1 was that prayer precedes action for the faithful believer. Chapter 1 was almost all a prayer. Remember that? He has this problem. He sees that the walls in Jerusalem have been torn down. They've been torn down for over 100 years now. The city lays in ruins. The temple's been rebuilt. The altar and the temple have been rebuilt. We learned that in Ezra. But then they stopped. But they stopped by order of, guess who? Artaxerxes. The, the king that Nehemiah's going to go talk to is the one that stopped the rebuilding of the wall in the first place. The wall was destroyed all the way back by Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C. But this same king that stopped the rebuilding of the wall is the one that Nehemiah is going to have to go and petition so that they could start building it again. Chapter 1, prayer precedes action for the faithful believer. It's a combination. It's not prayer without action. It's not action without prayer. It's prayer preceding action for the faithful believer. We move on now to Nehemiah chapter 2. Prayer is a major part of the book of Nehemiah, and a fair question that thinking Christians ask from time to time goes something like this. If God is sovereign 
and he will ultimately have his way, then what good does it do for me to pray? Have you ever thought that? If God is sovereign, we always talk about the sovereignty of God. God's the boss. Everything is going to work out exactly as he has it planned. Then what good does it do me to pray? The theological answer would go something like this. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist by divine decree. That's a good answer. But what does that mean? That means that, yes, God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. No serious Bible student would ever deny that. You may be asking, what does sovereignty mean? That'd be a fair question. Sovereignty means that God's the boss, with a capital B. It means that his plan will ultimately be accomplished and that there's nothing that any creature can do to thwart it. Absolutely nothing. That's what sovereignty means. So now you see why the question? If God is sovereign, if he's the boss, if his plan is going to come to pass and no human being can thwart it, then why should I bother to pray? Why did Nehemiah bother to pray? Why did Paul bother to pray? Why did Jesus bother to pray? So see, we have this on the other hand. We have the sovereignty of God on one hand, but we have all these models, particularly our Lord, the ultimate model, these models of what it means to be a spiritual Christian, and all these people pray. They pray intensely. We're commanded to pray. What about this? It's absolutely true that God is sovereign. Let's just get that as a foundational point. We would never want to argue against that. But it's equally true that no serious Bible student will fail to acknowledge that God has ordained human beings with free will, and he's given them the responsibility to make free will moral choices, either in submission to God or to rebellion against him. That is equally true. For every passage in the Bible that you can see that God is sovereign, he's the boss, he's going to have it his way, you also have these other passages that tell us we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pray. We have a responsibility to obey. We have a responsibility to believe and trust Christ. One thing I think that we need to at least put out on the table is the fact that God is in no way intimidated by human free will. He's in no way intimidated by the choices that human beings could, even, could possibly make under any circumstance. He's not intimidated by that. Some theologians act like God's somehow threatened if human beings make real choices. They wonder a lot about the theological ramifications of such a thing. They, they wonder, well, that would mean God's not ultimately in charge. If our will is truly free, then God's not ultimately in charge. We're in charge. Well, not so fast. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist by divine decree. Who decided that man would have free will? God did. It was a sovereign choice to make you choose. Now, you know how some people get around this. And to to me, the more I think about it, the more offensive it's really becoming. Some people get around it by saying, well, God's going to choose who's going to believe and who's not going to believe, who's going to obey him and who's not going to obey him, and then he makes you do it. No, I'm I'm not misrepresenting. He makes you do it. You You can't believe even on your best day, so he makes you do it. Again, all serious Bible students would agree that you can't do it on your own. But if we carefully look at the Bible, we see that God has made a provision for all to be saved. All to be saved. We call that the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And if he made that provision, it's my view, and I think it's the view of the Scriptures, that he also made, he enables all to believe. Some will do it, some won't. He also holds us responsible for the free will moral choices that we make. Now listen, what kind of God would it be? 
there's, there's a book that one apologist has out now. Is God a moral monster? Well, it's a fair question. If, if, we, if God is totally sovereign and he decides you're going to believe and you're not going to believe and I'm going to make it impossible for you to believe it and I'm going to make it impossible for you not to believe. So you're going to hell and, and, and you have no choice in it at all. I think that makes God a moral monster. I really do. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in a system that we make God a moral monster. And if you're so wrapped up in that system, you have every right to say, I'm not going to pray. Because if everything is foreordained to the degree that my decisions have no part in it at all, then it's a waste of time for me to pray. There's some sort of game that God is playing with, some sort of child, childlike game. You know, just go ahead and let them think there's a Santa Claus, so maybe they'll be good. That's not the God of the Bible. Now, I know you're thinking sovereignty, free will, Calvinism, Arminianism. Don't think that for right now. This has, a, this has an application to Nehemiah and the idea of prayer. But some people might speculate if God incorporates the free will decisions of his creation into his plan, then that would mean that God is no longer in control of his plan. He's somehow lost sovereignty. Excuse me, but how did you figure that out? How did you come to that conclusion? Is that the God that you see in the Bible? The God I see in the Bible is much bigger than that. The God I see in the Bible is big enough to allow free will decisions and never lose control over anything. Sovereignty is not God's only attribute, by the way. God is the sum total of his infinite perfection. Sovereignty is just a part of it. And some theologians, like Norman Geisler, bring out the point that it's, it's probably a stretch to talk so much about one single attribute. God is the sum total of his infinite attributes. He has other attributes besides sovereignty. And one of his other infinite perfections is omniscience. This is the one that gets left in the closet too many times when we talk about this issue. This means that God knows all that is knowable. Oh, wow. He knows all that is knowable both the actual and the possible. And this is what blows my mind, and he's always known it. God has never learned anything, because he's always known everything that was knowable, both actual and possible. All knowledge with God is simultaneous. He has known from eternity past every decision that you and I would ever make and the ramifications of every decision that we would ever make. Now, that blows my mind to think about one person. He's got billions. Let's don't shortchange God and his omniscience and his infinite perfection. Infinite perfection. He also knows what the ramifications would have been if you'd chosen a different course. That's mind-blowing. But follow me, it has application to Nehemiah. God's not waiting around on us to make our decisions so then he can see what he's going to do. All knowledge with God is simultaneous. And one of the reasons it's tough is because we're trying to figure out a, an infinite concept with a finite mind. There are two different categories of things. The best we can do is recognize it from the scriptures. But our finite minds may never be able to get our hands all the way around this. But we have to recognize from what we read that, yes, God's the boss. And the, this is all going to work out the way that he's got it planned. But at the same time, he gives us free will choices. God is not intimidated by giving you and me free will choices. 
and he always knew, this is what's mind-blowing, this is an infinite category with a finite mind, but God always knew what choices I would make before I ever made them, and he didn't make me make them. Now, the fact that he knew it ensures that I will make them, but there's still free will choice. How does this play into the idea of prayer? Well, again, if God is sovereign, and he will ultimately have his will, have his way, what good does it do to me for me to pray? The answer is God sovereignly incorporates our prayers into the overall scope of his plan. He's chosen in eternity past whether or not to answer affirmatively the prayers we make in time. And even that's a simultaneous choice. It's not like he has to even wait. He always knew what they would do. And he's also taken into account our refusal to pray. This is a real issue. I've had this come up after Wednesday night prayer meeting. Why are we bothering with this? God's either going to heal him or he's not going to heal him. Our prayers really don't make any difference, do they? And the idea is, the implication is, our prayers only make us feel better. That we've somehow done something, almost a Santa Claus kind of thing. That's ma- that makes a great deal of scripture farcical. And that's not the God of the Bible. He's not playing games with us. He does invite us to pray. And he takes our prayers and our petition into account in the outworking of his purpose. So, yes, pray. He also takes our refusal to pray into account in the outworking of his purpose. All this is taken into account, just like the other decisions that we make in time, whether or not we're going to believe in Jesus Christ, whether or not we faithfully serve the church. All of these decisions are taken into account. And they become part of God's plan. God's plan is not fatalistic. God does not make some believe and make others not believe. He enables all to believe and calls upon us all to make real choices and then holds us accountable for those choices. God would be a moral monster if he made it impossible for someone to believe or impossible for someone to obey and then held them accountable for the fact that they didn't obey. Let me tell you what the answer to that is. Let me tell you what the retort is. Well, that's just your view of justice. That's just your view of what what something good would be. Where did I get my idea of justice? Where did I get my idea of what would be moral? Where do we get the idea of the moral argument for God? Because we know, we innately know that some things are good and some things are bad. We innately know that helping a little old lady across the street with her bag is good but running over that same little old lady in a car is bad. That's Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm, I'm not pulling that out of my hat. That was his illustration, not mine. Of course, he said, the difference is, he said there is no inherent difference between the two because he was atheistic. He said there's no inherent difference. Well, we know that there is. Any thinking person is going to look at that and say, no, you're out of your mind. That's not true. It's horrible to kill a child. It's horrible to murder anybody, but it's good to help somebody. It's good to love that person. We know that innately, so we can't go with this silly argument that sometimes is proposed. And the more I think about it, the, the, the more tiresome it becomes. Well, that's just what you think is fair. Okay, then, then define fairness for me and tell me where you got that definition from. His sovereignty takes into account our requests in the outworking of his purpose. Now, why did I bother bringing up this mind-boggling theological principle now is because prayer is such an important part 
of the book of Nehemiah. And prayer is such an important part of your life and of my life. If you look at all the great faithful people of the past, think of George Mueller in England, not the George Mueller in Germany, George Mueller in England. You read his book on prayer, or you read a book about his life, rather, and you see how he puts most of us to shame when it comes to being a man of faith when it comes to prayer. Ian Bounds wrote about the time of the Civil War, somebody knows. I mean, incredible essays on prayer. This is not just a game that God is playing with us, and it's not just to make us feel better. Our prayers really do matter. And God can always answer yes, He can answer no, but we have a right to ask. And it's real, it's not fake. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Prayer is central to the book of Nehemiah. Now look at chapter 2 and read along with me. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took the, up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's, my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may come and allow me to pass until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for house to house I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was upon me. If we compare chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 1, Nehemiah prayed for four months before he approached the king. Now, that's intensity in prayer, isn't it? Not just a quick 10-minute prayer, Lord, help me with this king, help him not to execute me when I go ask him. Four months. He bathed the situation in intense prayer. He had a right to be apprehensive, by the way, because Artaxerxes could have interpreted his sadness, his sad demeanor, his sad face, in the presence of the king with some sort of dissatisfaction. That was not done in ancient Persia. We already saw that with Esther, which is, which again, is a story that happened before this time. There was even an ancient text, or actually ancient Persian works of art, rather, not a text, Persian works of art, that show an individual Persian approaching the king. And this is the way that they would approach him, with their hand over their mouth. And then when they approached the king and they would speak with their hand over their mouth, they would, they would be speaking to the king with reverence and respect. The idea being that we would not defile the king with, the own, with our own breath. Now, not necessarily bad breath. That's not what it's talking about so much. But even, even the fact that the part of me is coming into the king's presence. So they would approach the king with their, with their palm toward their mouth in, in this kind of manner. This is the kind of respect that kings expected. So Nehemiah had a right to, to be a little bit scared 
when he went to the king. But there's more to it than that. Nehemiah is going to ask Artaxerxes to revise his own official policy toward the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that certainly could have incurred the king's wrath. If the king is any kind of ego maniac at all, and a lot of times ancient kings were, they wouldn't have liked it. If someone came and said, listen, your policy, well, by implication, isn't he saying your policy's wrong if it needs to be changed? Isn't that what he's saying? So that certainly would have incurred the king's wrath. Remember back in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, this is Artaxerxes. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. So Artaxerxes, way back in Ezra, chapter 4, is saying that nothing's going to happen here until I say so. And I've decided that it's not a good idea to rebuild. Well, now Nehemiah's going to go tell him, maybe it's time to change your mind. I found this very interesting, perhaps you did too. As Nehemiah was talking with the king, he is also talking with God. Have you ever done that? Kind of a spontaneous prayer, a quick prayer? I've done it. <laughs> I've done it even while I'm preaching, which is, which is a trick, by the way. But you know, you, you know exactly what I mean. You can be praying to God while you're sitting there looking at somebody else. And that's what he does. This is a, one of the best examples of a spontaneous, quick prayer in the Bible. It doesn't say, the text doesn't tell us what he says, but it says, Then the king said to me, verse 4, what would, you re- what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. So perhaps the prayer was just something like, Oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> oh, Lord, soften his heart. It probably was fairly quick. This is probably not the same kind of prayer he had prayed for the previous four months. When you have some time and you can, you can perhaps be more thoughtful and eloquent in the prayer. But you know, when the plane's going down, when the flames are in both engines, maybe all you have time for is, oh, Lord, help me. Or, like, I, like I've prayed one time, we were landing, I think it was in New York City, and it was bad weather. We, Cindy and I were both on that plane. The kids were real little, and they, they had circled around a bunch of times. They had aborted the eight flights in front of us. The eight flights in front of us had all aborted, and our guy decides he's going in with, with permission from the tower. He decides he's going in. And we were all over the place, and we just kind of held hand, Lord, help our children. There wasn't a whole lot, you know, we help us, but help our children, give them a good home should something happen to us. Because this is not looking, this is not looking real good. That's the kind of thing I mean. Harold Honer, who was a master at calculating dates, better than anybody I've ever seen, he had, he had a mind working with computers that was, especially when it comes to this kind of stuff, that was in- incredible. And Harold Horner calculated the date of Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem as March 5th, 444 B.C. March 5th, 44 B.C. Now, it's difficult because you had different calendars. You had a solar calendar versus a lunar calendar and different holidays and, and all that, or different, different uh, you know, these leap year kind of ideas and all that. So it's, it's very, very difficult. And Harold Horner calculated... March 5, 444 B.C. The interesting thing is, is is this marks the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks. Ever heard of that? Yeah. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 reads this way. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks have been determined concerning your people and your holy city to put an end to rebellion, 
to bring sin to completion, to atone for iniquity, to bring in perpetual righteousness, to seal up the prophetic vision, so know and understand, and here's the operative phrase or the operative verse, so from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, but in distressful times. Now, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. As for the, as for the city and the sanctuary, the people of the coming prince will destroy them, but his end will come speedily, like a flood, until the end of the war that has been decreed there will be destruction. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. On the wing of abominations will come one who destroys until the decree, uh, until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. The, the, the key phrase I want you to see, though, is the one that's up here on the board. From the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's what we just talked about. That was, according to Harold Honer, March 5th, 444 B.C. Until that time... There will be, a, 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 from that point in time, there will be a prescribed number of days until Messiah is going to come. 69 of those 70 weeks, which comes to 1,000, or 173,880 days, were literally fulfilled at the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And he presented himself as Israel's Messiah. And again, according to Honer, and I have no reason to doubt him, on March 30th, A.D. 33, the prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled to that very day. But it starts here in Nehemiah chapter 2. This is when the clock starts ticking. And everybody in Israel should have known that. It shouldn't have been a big surprise to anybody that Messiah was here. And guess what? It probably wasn't. Because at the time of Jesus, there were many, many people, at least a couple of dozen, that were wandering around Judea at the time claiming that they were the Messiah. Now, why would they do that? Because they can do the math. Just like you could and I could and Harold Horner could and everybody else. They could do the math. They knew the time of Messiah was near. But Jesus of Nazareth was the only one that proved by virtue of not just his words, but his works that he was indeed the covenant of Messiah to Israel. Those others weren't believable. Anybody can get up and say, I'm Messiah. Anybody can get up and be a Jim Jones. The last time I looked, Jim Jones took a whole lot of people to the grave with him, and he's still in the grave. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. God showed you that he was the one that had actually been promised. So the clock starts ticking here in Nehemiah chapter 2. I thought you would find that interesting. I hope you do. Now, there was one mention here of a fortress. In Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus, there was a, call, there was a fortress called the, the Fortress of Antonia. It was on the north side of the town. This is a forerunner that he's going to build to the Fortress of Antonia. Okay. There were possible political and military reasons why Artaxerxes would have granted this request. And it's worthwhile to at least consider those. The Egyptians around this same time were rebelling against the Persians. The Syrians around this same time were rebelling against the Persians. So it would have been in, to the Persians' benefit 
Artaxerxes' benefit, to have some sort of armed outpost that was essentially set in between those two places because both these people had been rebelling. Does that take away the idea of divine providence? In other words, God changing Artaxerxes' heart. No, not in any way. In fact, to me, it strengthens the idea of divine providence because providentially God allowed the Egyptians and the Syrians to rebel at right about this same time so Artaxerxes would have extra motivation to allow Nehemiah's request. You see what his request is? Let's rebuild Jerusalem. Let's put the walls around it. Let's build a fort there. And so it makes sense for Artaxerxes to say, okay, because at the very same time, God had providentially allowed Egypt and Syria to revolt. Something similar happens in the life of Christ, doesn't it? In the, li in the life of Christ, we have a man named Pontius Pilate that hap just happens to be the governor of Judea at that time. Just happens to be? No, he was put there providentially. He just happens to be very weak politically? No, he's weak providentially. They already had several things happen to him that put him in a position of extreme weakness so that when the Jewish leadership comes and says, you're no friend of Caesar if you don't execute this man, he executes him. So we have a relatively, for everything we can read, relatively fair man in Pontius Pilate, but a man who is very weakened from a political standpoint. We know from history that, that Tiberius had already told Pontius Pilate, I want no more trouble in Judea. Any more trouble in Judea and you're coming home and it's not going to be good for you. Actually, after all this happened, Pontius Pilate was exiled. He was exiled from Palestine to southern Gaul. That's a bit of an aside, but you know where southern Gaul is? That's the French Riviera. However, it wasn't the French Riviera at the time, so it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite so nice as what it might be now. But no, this is not accidental. This is providential. So the, the fact sometimes people look at these things and say, well, there was no, this God's not working here. The only reason he allowed Nehemiah to go back was because they were rebellious. Maybe there were rebellions because God providentially allowed those rebellions. There's no accidents here in God's timing. No, providence is what's at work. Now, in verses 9 through 20, we see Nehemiah return to Jerusalem. In verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. He's got an armed escort. We don't know how many people went back. It's never specifically stated. But we do know he has an armed escort when he goes back to Judea. He's got an armed escort because there's going to be people that aren't real happy about Judea being rebuilt, or Jerusalem, rather, Jerusalem being rebuilt. So he sends an armed escort with him, and it's a good thing he has it. In verse 10, when Sambalat, the, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They don't know what he's going to do just yet. They're mad because someone from the capital of Persia, had decided to come back and just check on him. So you see the kind of antagonism that he's going to face. He said last time he's going to face antagonism from without, and he's going to face antagonism from within. Resistance from without, resistance from within, but he stayed with it. He was persistent, and he didn't give up. That's what makes Nehemiah a great leader. He's a spiritual leader, and he's also a great political leader as well. The Elephantine Papyra, which is circa 400 B.C., only 44 years after this, names a man by this name, Sanballat, as the governor of Samaria. 
which he may not, may not have been at the time this, this took place, but somewhere around the time, this man either is or becomes or was the governor of Samaria. So we have extra biblical sources that give us this exact same name. That doesn't make me believe the Bible anymore necessarily, but it's nice when we start to see things add up like that. It does have some apologetic value, I believe. Tobiah is somebody different. He seems to be a Jew. His name means Yahweh is good. And he had attained a similar position to Sanballat in Amnon, or Ammon rather, east of Judah under the Persians. So we have two people that are governors that don't like the fact that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. The governor of Samaria, not Syria. Remember I said Syria was rebelling. This is Samaria, the area right north of Jerusalem. He doesn't like the fact that, Samaria, that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Makes sense, doesn't it? Why would he want a rebuilt Jerusalem? That's a threat to him. And Tobiah, who's a governor of the area just east of Jerusalem, he doesn't want Jerusalem rebuilt because it's a threat to him to have a strong Jerusalem. When Nehemiah gets there, he wants to survey the damage himself, and he wants to do it quietly because he already knows that tensions are building just by the fact that he showed up to look at it. And they don't even know what he's there for yet. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. And I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Here is a map. Some in the back won't be able to see this, but this is a map, or a drawing, rather, of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. Don't confuse this with a drawing of the city of Jerusalem, a schematic of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Here's the temple area. At the time of Christ, it would have gone way over here. But at the time of Nehemiah, it was a smaller city. Now, what Nehemiah says is he sneaks out at night by stealth. He went out at night by the valley gate and goes south to, my Bible says the refuge gate, but it's really the dung gate. He goes south and goes all the way down to the, the southernmost area called the dung gate, and he's examining the wall with this small group of men. When he gets down to the dung gate, he turns and goes back north. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed through the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mouth to pass. So by the time he gets here, there's so much rubble there that his horse or his donkey or whatever it may have been couldn't get through there. So perhaps after going down into the Kidron Valley, perhaps, those of you that have been to Israel, you know there's a valley between Jerusalem and Mount of Olives. He perhaps went down into this Kidron Valley, at least took a visual of this part of the gate or this part of the wall, which is no longer there. And then he comes back and he goes back into the gate that he just came out of. So he makes this circle around the southernmost part of the city. We may wonder why he does that. Why doesn't he just go around the entirety of the city? Apparently, this was the only part of the city that had any wall standing at all. The walls around the, the East, the west, and the northern part of the city were apparently completely in ruins. There were no walls at all. In fact, they were so much in ruins that there's so much debris right here, he can't, get even, he can't even get past that. And again, those walls were huge, and if they were all torn down, there would be a massive amount of debris. 
and you can't climb over it. You wouldn't want to ride an animal over it. It would be deadly, especially in, in the dark of night. Jerusalem, historically, has never been that vulnerable from the south. This might explain why the walls are still there. He can, expect, he can inspect these walls, which were damaged, but they're still there. Jerusalem has never been that vulnerable from the south. There, at least to my knowledge, there never was a successful invasion of, of Jerusalem from the southern area. It's too rocky. It's, there's a canyon there. It's just not good to march an army through. You would be able to sit up on those hills and fire down at people. It's just not very vulnerable from the south. But from the north, they were attacked many times. From this area down, they were attacked. And that's why the walls would have been completely wiped out at the point of attack. That's why the walls were probably still standing in the south or a remnant of the walls. That's why he could look at them. If you're wondering what's going on in this text, he's looking at what are remnants. But, but by the time he wants to get up to the north, he can't even get there because of all the rubble from these walls that have been torn down. So it's a real sad situation that he's in. Again in verse 15, so I went up by night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. So that's the arrow that's got him coming back where he came from. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. This is wisdom. He, he gets an appraisal of the situation before he develops a plan of action for the rebuilding of the wall. It makes sense to have a plan. And our plans are not sinful to God by definition unless they are against God's will. Sometimes people have this idea that it's sinful for me to have a plan. No. It's sinful for me to have a business plan. I need to wake up in the morning and I just need to let go and let God, whatever God wants to do, that's fine. No, you know what? If you run your business like that, you're probably going to go out of business. It's legitimate to sit down and set goals and directions for your businesses, your companies. It's legitimate to, to hire firms to say maybe do some advertising, to say I want people to know about my business. It's not unspiritual to put up a billboard for your business. Well, that's just not trusting God. No, not at all. But sometimes we overthink things as Christians. We strain at things. No, Nehemiah has a plan, and he takes a certain amount of time to, to look at the whole situation. He goes out by night. This is not an accident that this is in this text. He t it's dangerous for him to go out at night, especially in that area. I mean, you think of the geography of that area. There's some danger to it. He does what he can. When he comes to that pile of rubble, he says, okay, that's all I can do. He doesn't take that donkey or that horse on top of that pile of rubble and says, well, I'm here on the divine order. I'm going to just go, I'm going to take this donkey over here, and if I die, I die. No, that's not it. He makes a reasoned decision and says, okay, that's all I can see. I see what I need to see. I've got the data that I need to have to come up with a plan to rebuild this wall. And none of it is unspiritual at all. He's there at God's direction. Have you ever kind of come to the conclusion that God would like us to use the intellect that he gives us? Sometimes we check it at the door. He wants you to use your creativity. For far too long, Christians have checked their creativity at the door. Why is it that only unbelievers in Hollywood can use their creativity? Why is it that only unbelievers with regard to graphic art can use their creativity? Why is it that we, that we leave, at least in today's time, why is it that we leave most of the art to non-Christians? didn't used to be that way. Some of the greatest art that has ever been produced, some of the greatest creativity that's ever come out of our 
of our souls and our bodies has been by believers. And it was done for the glory of God. Everything J.S. Bach wrote musically had inscribed on it to the glory of God. Everything. Why, why do we have this idea that God doesn't want us to use every bit of talent that he gave us? He gave it to us to use. He gave you that mind. He gave you that imagination. He gave, he gave you the energy that you have. You know, some people think for the glory of God. Some people write for the glory of God. Some people draw for the glory of God. Some people run for the glory of God. So whatever God gifted you with, use it for him. Nehemiah's got a great mind. He's a wise man. We studied last week that he's, no, he's not a simple cupbearer, and we studied this morning that these cupbearers also had great political influence, perhaps even something like the second person in charge of a kingdom. You know, he was confidant of the king. Nehemiah is no lightweight intellectually. He uses the same skills that he was using over in Persia to help run the Persian Empire to fulfill the task that he's got now in Jerusalem. We should use the skills that God has given us, but we should use them for his glory, not just for our own self-enrichment, but ultimately for his glory. Now, if you happen to, to make some money in the process, that's not a sin either, as long as it's made honestly and, and without any kind of uh, fraud at all. Verse 17, then I said to them, the them are the officials, the Jews, the nobles, the priests, the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, in verse 17, you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also how the king's words, about the king's words which he had spoken to me, then they said, they're motivated by this man. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But, verse 19, we have these same two fellows come back again. You remember they were upset and they just heard that he's passing through to take a look at the situation. Now that they find out he's going to rebuild it, they're really upset. So when Sanballat, the, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? That's the only thing they could do. Because, you see, the king sent them. They can't really go up against them because somehow it's, it's become clear that Artaxerxes has sent him back. So how do they handle it? How do they try to tear him down? How do they try to stop the project? the way that all weak people try to stop projects, and that's with their mouth. They try to tear people down with their mouth. They try to ridicule him. They try to discourage him in any way that they can, and they are mocking him. I don't like to get mocked. You don't like to get mocked, but it is a real discouraging thing to do. So this, this, is, this is the mark of a weak-minded person, someone who has no strength. They have to fight you by ridiculing you and mocking the endeavor. Oh, you're going to start a business? Really? You're, you're going to start a business? Oh, oh, okay. Well, good luck with that. You know? uh, you're going to seminary? You, you know, you do have to study. In, you know, there's Greek and there's Hebrew. Really? You think you can? Oh, okay. Hey, if that's what the Lord's leading you, go ahead. You see these little bitty digs, these little digs that people can get in, to try to discourage 
That's what people do. Don't let it happen. If you feel like God has called you to something, then you do it, and as best as you can, ignore what they're saying, or at least consider the source of what they're saying. Consider the source of who's saying it, rather. If you're convinced that you're doing what God wants you to do. Don't let these little digs stop you. And listen, everybody in this room has been the recipient of some of these little digs at one time or another. So I answered them. I love Nehemiah. He's such a leader, such a spiritual man. I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. This has nothing to do with you. You're not going to have any inheritance here. Even if you try to help us later, you're going to have no inheritance because of what you're doing right now. You are not friends. You are foes. Chapter 2 essentially tells us that those who serve God effectively must bathe the task at hand in prayer, and then act in wisdom. Those who wish to serve God effectively must bathe the task at hand in prayer and then act in wisdom. This is exactly what Jesus said.